again, uh, there's a couple things. One, you guys are both frozen again. Can you see me or no? I can see, see you. you, Jim. You're good. Okay, good. You were just so motionless. I thought you maybe fell asleep. <laughs> Welcome to the Future's Edge podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As always, Bob Iacchino is the brains of the operation and the co-host. Today, I'm scared of the show because it could come off the rails a little bit. We have as our guest, Professor David Colum from, uh, from Cornell University, the head of the chemistry department there, <laughs> a bona fide certified troublemaker and a good friend of ours. <laughs> Welcome, Dave. Let's do it over, Bobby. You want me to take over here? What's going on with you? Yeah, you go. You go. <laughs> Dave, welcome. I mentioned on Twitter I wanted to talk about something pretty much immediately, if that's okay with you. That, and um, I've, I've never run into a topic that I didn't have an opinion about. All right, good. Let's talk about you tweeted. So I've got you actually got your Twitter up here in front of you. It is if, if anybody watching this doesn't follow Dave, you're just you're just not living life if you don't follow Dave, but you mentioned something about there's, there's just basically zero way that you can see an electric vehicle being green. Um, can you go into that a little bit? Obviously, I mean, I, I have my own opinion that's very similar to yours, but um, I still like them because they're fast. So tell me what you mean by uh, there's just zero way that an electric car is green. Well, I got corrected on that, interestingly enough. So I dug into this and what mm -hmm. I discovered was, um, I reached out to an energy security analyst and said, are alternative energies in any way, shape or form ever going to replace fossil fuels? He said, no way. And he gave me some references to a guy who did a detailed cradle to grave analysis. And, and if you really sincerely and analyze the greenness of windmills and solar panels and stuff, they, they, they stink according to this analysis. And others have their analyses and say they work great. Of course, these are guys who are getting big money to sell windmills and solar panels and stuff like that. So here's what I did learn from that. There was this great quote where someone said, you want to learn something, just put out something slightly wrong on the internet and sit back and read. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's what I did. And, and I got a bunch of answers. Most of them are you douchebag sort of things. Right. And I go, yeah, okay, fine. I knew that. Um, but, but, but what I did discover is that apparently because you can construct an energy plant efficiently to, to generate energy efficiently that to go from fossil fuel to an energy plant to electricity is more efficient than going from a fossil fuel straight to a car engine. Now, I thought putting the intermediary would, would, would produce a net loss, but I, I stood corrected. And some guys tried to argue with the guy who said that. And I said, no, I, I, and I asked a colleague and, and he said, and I, I came back, I said, no, he's right. That's, mm -hmm. that's a good answer. So if we could find a way to get, the problem is it's still fossil fuel. Right. Right, but one could argue that, and, and then, um, cradle the grave construction of one of these cars is a huge amount of fossil fuel. And they, they say it takes 140,000 miles of driving optimistically to break even on the fossil fuel consumption and stuff like that. And so, um, so, so we're not green yet, but one can make the argument that, um, that if we don't go through this period of failure, we won't get to the period of success, right? 
This is a very Edisonian approach. Problem is, if they say you can't have fossil fuels as of year 2030, we're all totally screwed. So, so you can't so, legislate the problem into solution. You can't legislate the problem. Dave, can you make that a little more clear for me? You said an intermediary. You said you can't just go fossil fuels. What, is it, what do you mean by that? So fossil fuel to power plant to car is less direct than fossil fuel to car. Right. right? Yeah, I got and I, and, and, but someone said, but since you can engineer a power plant to be as optimized, um, it turns out the claim was fossil fuel to power plant to car was actually uh, had a lower loss of energy. Okay, so what about if we add nuclear to this equation? Oh, nuclear is the whole game, the whole game. So the, then we're fine, right? That's right. Anyone, That's right. Could, could they could they ever possibly realize that, or are they just too stupid? Uh, I think a lot of people who are big fans of green or nuclear, and I think a lot of people who are big fans of green are idiots. And I think the idiots right now are screaming, but when we have to finally get there, I think we're going to go to nukes. So okay. I have a question and for when... both of you then, Jim, because Jim's very fond of, <clears throat> obviously <laughs> I, follow, I follow Jim as well. And Jim's very fond of basically calling out what he believes. And, and I agree with him 99.9% .9 of the time, what he believes these, these policies are deliberate. So my stance, and I was arguing with a friend of mine recently is that um, I, either some of these things are deliberate or they're just idiots, or they're just ignorant of these sort of unforeseen consequences the avoidance of nuclear are the idiots this is for both of you or is it deliberate just to kind of get the sort of um manic left the green 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 left uh satisfied and quiet so, you so take it first, I, I wrote a big section on this last year in a write-up and i i put forth a theory this was 2021 i said um I believe that they're going to engineer a fossil fuel crisis. And then I said, mark my words. And, and one of my working models is the possibility that they, they, the, the, the guys in Davos, whoever you want to talk about, right? They know we got to get the nukes. They also know that there's, there's a ton of people saying not in my backyard, and blah, 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 blah. And so that their model could actually be rather rational where you say, okay, let's freeze them out for a couple of winters. Let's just nuke them. Let's just make those bastards suffer, wrap in blankets, whatever. And then they'll be saying, the way I said this is, they'll be saying, just give me a goddamn vaccine and nuclear power. Right? That's how they'll do, do it. Do I, do I need to answer after that, Bobby? Because, yes, I, I, we've said the whole time, you and I have, that you and I have is that the, the fossil fuel crisis has been absolutely engineered. And I think that that's provable. You give us a whiteboard, we can talk about regulation going down the line that was literally designed to drive up the price of fossil fuels and get out. And even like the beginning of this administration, going hat in hand to, to the Saudis and asking them to put more with the same time restricting permits here, the whole thing's just asinine. Um, one of the interesting questions is, uh, and it keeps coming up over and over, whether it's January 6th or whether it's the, the hearings or whether it's uh, Ukraine or whether it's, uh, um, whether it's Afghanistan pullout, um, you find yourself saying, you know, these guys are just so stupid. And I, I remember when I read George Friedman, founder of Stratford's book, America's Secret War, and he opens right up saying, do not underestimate the intelligence of any of the players. That was his opening warning. So some guy sitting in a cave in Afghanistan with some sort of thing wrapped on his head. He's not a stupid bastard. 
And, and, and so then the question is what's going on? So I, great example to me is Afghanistan. I could have taken a class of first graders and constructed a better pullout. I'm confident. So therefore, if it's not possible they're that stupid, then, then your model's wrong. You're thinking about it wrong. And so Afghanistan to me was an arms deal. We handed Afghanistan over to the Taliban. We, we, we cut deals with them. And the only, the only thing I don't know is why we had to do it in such a humiliating way. Why it couldn't have been done in a way where we save more face. Now, here's the problem. Biden is owned, and I don't think this is a partisan stance, although I am partisan against him. Um, Biden is owned not only by China in a very big way, right? All the dealings he's done in China, if they decide to pop his ass, he's done. They could, they could throw his son under the bus. They could throw his comrades under the bus. They could do everything. I think he's also owned by Ukraine because he has so many bad deals there. And so everyone who knows about these bad deals can bend his ass over a barrel. So when he does something that seems absurd, like uh, raid Mar-a-Lago, right? So what if the FBI has gone, oh, no, no, we can't do this. And Biden says, you have to do it. Because someone told Biden, you have to do it. So when you have a president that's completely owned by not only some deep state, but not ours, you got a problem. So was, was there presidents who, who weren't owned at all by anybody in recent history, in your opinion? And Trump. then we'll get back to market. Trump. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. No, no, that's, that's the thing. It, it really was Trump. And that's one of the reasons that they've hated him with such a passion is that they couldn't control him. Okay. There's a, there's a letter that came out that said, we can't control this guy. There's a, they said, we can't control this guy. You know, before, well, we, take letter from to, before we take it back to markets, we don't, we don't, obviously it's a market-based show, but there's just so much politics going on that affects the markets that it's an unavoidable conversation to me. And I remember, I think it was Ben Shapiro that said to Bill Maher while Trump was still in office, he said, look, either he's a moron or he's a genius and you got to pick one. Right. That's what I keep thinking when I see things like this. I mean, is it just an, an ignorance of the unintended consequences or is it actually like, no, they'll be fine or they won't be fine. We don't care. And I think you both just answered that. But I, the only thing that leaves me sleeping at night is that they're that dumb. Like I, I personally and, and you're saying they're not. Well, so I got an argument yesterday with a guy who kept saying they're just that stupid. And I said, look, militaries have been studying pullouts from Afghanistan for 2000 years or more. They know how to pull, put troops in. They know how to pull them out. There's nothing more fundamental to a military than that. You can't tell me that anyone in any way, shape, or form could have blown the Afghanistan pullout that badly, right? I would have just provided a few kegs, handed all my troops a bunch of goddamn you know, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, you know, said, it's blow shit up Friday. Let's blow this shit up. Instead, we left it. We left pallets of money. We could have dropped a mob on top of the whole damn thing. You know, the idea that um, we thought that the Afghan army could survive and, and excel, and it lasted 22 seconds. Mm. And the idea that our CIA didn't know that this Afghan army was not ready. And the fact that as soon as we left, we cut off their pay, which means they're no longer paid to be Afghan soldiers. I, that it, it, you have to be insane to think that that's just stupid. So, you have to be. So is it possible then that the 13 lost lives were just a, a stupid plan that went awry 
there's no possible way that was part of the plan because it's politically it looked terrible, right? Hard to say, you know. Uh, you know, one of the problems with military things like that is that if you realize that if someone's in the military, if they can't sacrifice 13 lives, they can't have that job, right? right. So, so you know, you can get into all sorts of things. And they go, oh, whatever. Who could ever call to have the Lusitania blown up, right? It's go well. Yeah. The same guys who called to drop people on Omaha Beach, right? Yeah. You know, this and, is I the mean, cost of doing war. The Lusitania genuinely did have secrets on it and was blown up for a That's very right. solid reason by the Germans. Okay, yeah. And that, that didn't come out till 50 years later, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think there's, I don't think we started a war without something devious, right? Right. The, the unprovoked attack on Pearl Harbor. That's the stupidest line I've ever heard. We had our foot on their throats. We blockaded the country. They had no access to energy. We gave no choice. And then they bombed Pearl Harbor. We pulled out the carriers. Admirals were saying, get this fleet out of there. They're going to get bombed. They got ignored. There was chatter in the Pacific. It got ignored. No one, no one was in a watchtower. No one was in a watchtower. F troop puts people in watchtowers. <laughs> and not to just that 45 minutes before the first shots are fired on Fort Island, we blow up a submarine on the other side of the island. Those right. people call the chain of command and supposedly that message gets lost in 45 right. minutes. So the whole thing, that's a crazy story as well. And the fact that the flat tops are out of Fort Island, uh, out of Pearl too, was just amazing to me. There's no possible way they didn't know it was coming. Right, and so the, so the bottom line is that if their lips are moving, they're lying. And, and, and I, I don't think, I, I dug deep into the Ukraine story. What, what, a, what a propaganda slathered piece of crap that is. And, 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 uh, and so then the question is, um, it, it's never what it appears to be, I think. I think it's never what it appears to be. The Fed, one time someone asked Greenspan a question, sort of implying that they were stupid. And he says, do you really think you know something we don't know? And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, that's a great rhetorical question. Okay, so that, that brings us back to markets perfectly because there's obvious that any one of us three right here knew 18 months ago when they were buying mortgage-backed bonds into a, a real estate market that was already wildly overheated, we, what the hell were they doing? What was the end game? Why did they wait so long? Is it about saving the, the uh, states that were so indebted, just devaluing the dollar? to a piece of crap so they could pay back you know, with cheaper dollars? Um, see, I, I don't even believe the model that says you can inflate away debt. If you actually look, it's, it's like saying, I'm gonna catch my shadow. So I think as you try to inflate away debt, you actually, you go, what? wait, wait, we have more debt now, right? <laughs> so, so, so show me, show me where the debt, to inflate away your debt, inflation has to run faster than debt growth. And, and there's, it's just not happening. Um, they you, think it will happen though, right? I'm not they sure. I'm not sure they, the big they, I'm not sure they do. I think the average homeowner who says, oh, wonderful, if we get inflation, then my house will be cheap. And I go, would you do some arithmetic and find and tell me how that's going to work? Because you're still going to make the same payment. You're, you're, your paycheck is not going to keep up with inflation. I just went to the store. It's unbelievable in there. It's a war zone in that store when you look at the price tags. Right? Things I know what they used to cost. My, I, I put a tweet out a week ago that said, my brother's an accountant. He keeps track of everything. And yeah, I know he's nuts. Um, he says food is up 41% year over year. Now, you know Twitter. I got 17,000 likes. 
that hit a nerve. And, and so what it tells me is that we are not inflating away debt. We're just wreaking havoc. And, and then the question is, are they that stupid? I don't think so. It could be they're that desperate. It could be they don't know what to do, not because they're stupid, because we're at the end game. Right? What, what more on the, that? Well, what is the end game? The end game, someone says you have stage four cancer. And you go, well, well what do I do? And you, you start going off to, you know, Indonesian shamans trying to get miracle remedies and shit. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, what the person would say to you is get your affairs in order, right? Yeah. And, and it could be where at the, the, the Western economy is at a kind of a get your affairs in order moment. And it's possible that their movements, and this way outside my skill set, way outside my ability to imagine, but it's possible they're trying to position for that moment, not to prevent the catastrophe, but to somehow uh, allow us to move forward. During World War II, there were cities in Germany we did not bomb. They were important cities. And it was because we knew at the end of the war, we'd have to clean up the mess. And we left those industrial centers alone. And, and so, so they, they're, they might be playing 3D chess on us, right? They, they might be way smarter. and We're all calling them idiots. So when you, when you say the end game, like you're, is, it, is there an implication of hyperinflation? Is there an implication of what? Well, hyperinflation, the best description I ever heard of hyperinflation is that it's a failed state. So when you're in hyperinflation, it's just, it's gone, right? You, you, you've, you've, you've blown it. I don't know if we're there. We're certainly at high inflation. Um, I, there's so many groups in danger if the Fed fails to do what they've been able to do for 40 years. For 40 years, they've had this Okay, you know Horizon Kinetics, right? These guys mm -hmm. are they're very smart. Murray Stahl, very smart guy. He made he said something very uh, things that we've all heard, but he said it in a way that was brilliant. He said forty years ago, two amazing thing happens. I'd actually say three, but he said the he said China came out of their dark world, and they they needed capital desperately, and all they had was labor to sell. Russia. Was, on, was working towards collapse. They hadn't collapsed yet, but they were working towards collapse. They knew it and, and they desperately needed capital and all they had were resources to sell. He said, for the next 40 years, we benefited from those two tailwinds. I would add to that, we had a 40 year credit cycle that was blowing into our backs the whole way. I would say those were three miraculous events that occurred simultaneously and they can't occur again. And then the question is, what's the world look like when you don't have those kind of tailwinds? So what, what do those tailwinds do? Well, they, they create a market where monetary policy can keep generating V-bounces. V-bounces are stupid, right? They correct nothing. It bounces, you go bam, boom, bang, you back up, you go, what correct? You say, oh, that was a tough correction. I go, no, it wasn't, it corrected nothing. You're still an idiot, right? It corrected nothing. Until you wake up and say, holy fuck, I'm not doing that again. You've corrected nothing. And uh, so we got okay, V-bounces for 40 straight years, 40 straight years of V-bounces. I got another question before I'm gonna let Bobby ask a question. So you mentioned Ukraine and you mentioned Russia before. When we destroyed the Soviet Union back in the eighties, the biggest part of that was driving oil prices below $10 a barrel. That's basically Russia's just a gas station. This time we decided to go the other way. 
we embargoed them, driving oil and gas prices up. What, was that a like everyone was like, well, yeah, Russia's causing trouble. We have to embargo their oil. And that, that, that's not a common practice to do something like that in a time of global stress. Right. It almost seemed like it was nefarious on our part. Well, this gets back to the it's either incredibly stupid or some sort of genius that I don't understand. What's incredibly stupid is to is to pick on the Russians right after the covid where we've got supply chain problems. It's incredibly stupid to take the supplier of grain and wheat and, and oil to the entire European continent and, and embargo them. That's like in Blazing Saddles where the guy puts the gun to his head and says, you move, I'm going to shoot him, right? Um, it just doesn't make sense. That's not what he says, if I remember correctly. Uh, the line, there's by the no way. chance. There's that. no chance <laughs> I'm quoting the guy. That I, I, that's as close as I will get to that famous line. Um, <laughs> and so the consequence is that it's either the most incredibly stupid thing or your model's wrong. And I think your model's wrong. I think our model's wrong. Um, I personally, as soon as Ukraine showed up, I dug back pre-war, started watching Putin speeches, started watching, reading articles about Ukraine. The Ukraine story it completely mutated the minute Putin moved in. Here's my current stance. I don't think it's gonna change. Over years, Putin repeatedly said, you can't have Ukraine to, to NATO. NATO is designed to oppose Russia. This, NATO's not just a, a, a boys club. It is designed and its entire purpose for being is to oppose Russia. So if you wanna say, oh, Putin's being a dick, I go, there's an organization to oppose him. How, how, do, you, how do you blame him, right? So he, he repeatedly approached NATO and said, you can't have Ukraine. This is existential risk for us. All the armies ever come into Russia came through Ukraine. It's on our southern border, right? What would we do if they put troops in Mexico? We'd bomb right. the piss out of them, the piss out of them, right? And we, we didn't just say, no, we have our needs because here's why. Those are two sovereign states talking about their needs. We said, we don't care. We flipped them off completely. And when you take a sovereign state and you say, you don't matter, that's a very different kind of an answer than we can't agree with you. Right. And, and that's like what we that. did. He even approached the Pope before the war. Putin did? He, yeah, he, he made a number of overtures to stop this war. And they didn't work. The neocons. I'm, I'm not, I'm throwing out my Ukraine mask. I'm not even going to wear it anymore. Bobby, what do you got? You can take the Ukraine decorations down now because now that we've got the Mar-a-Lago raid, Ukraine war is over. Right. Okay. Good. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already exhausted and depressed. So I want to talk about inflation and I'm going to do a little lead in to, to my question. I think economics has become philosophy. If it was ever science, it's no longer science. Right. And the reason I say that is because you're a professor of organic chemistry. That's a science. There are irrefutable rules and definitions in organic chemistry. There are things that are just always true. I remember being in a philosophy class and a little four foot, nine inch old teacher. Said flat head? Did she have a flat head? She had a flat head. She had a flat head? Okay, just checking. She did. She had a very flat head. It was weird. Seems like it was developed over years, but whatever. Yeah. Um, she actually said to me, she goes, there are statements that are always true. And, and me being a smart ass my entire life, I'm like, that's not possible. And she says to me, well, it's either raining or it's not raining. And I said, what if it's snowing? And she goes, well, it's not raining. 
And I felt so stupid. And that's the last time I ever just argued with something without thinking about it. The thing that bothers me about economics right now is the free use of language. Now, the gym, you're going to think this is directed at you. It's not. If the Fed stops raising rates, people are calling that a pivot. I don't understand how that's a pivot rather than a pause to the inflation question. People are talking about peak inflation. Dave, I'm sure you've looked at a chart of the actual CPI and see that it is basically straight up forever. Mm-hmm. In other words, inflation never peaks. Okay, so this month, this uh, July's month over month inflation was 0%. Okay, so that's this on the month over month. We had three negative month over month growth um, CPIs right after the pandemic. It's basically March, April, May of 2020. To find two negative CPIs, you have to go all the way back to, to 2015 if you take those three out. In other words, CPI never peaks, ever. It just keeps going up. Right. So here's my question. When people talk about P- CPI and the peak inflation, they're talking about the rate of change. Right. But do you agree or disagree that people with the negative real wages, if you account for the amount of hours lost on the job, it's about negative 3.5% right now. It's almost a spiral that we can't get out of. Because you saw the strong wage numbers in the non-farm payrolls. If those wage numbers keep going up, we get a, a, some sort of wage price spiral. If they don't go up, we continue to have people suffering with the part of the CPI curve that went from this to this over the last 25 months. Is there a solution to this that's driven by a Fed? I, I don't think so. First of all, the, so the inflation, peak inflation is basically a second derivative. First derivative <laughs> is the growth. The second derivative is the growth of the growth. And so, so CPI could be constant. The CPI could be the, the, the CPI could be constant, and therefore you say there's zero um, there's zero growth in inflation. Now, the other day, and this was predicted by someone, I said, "Oh, they can't be that stupid." Well, they did. So Kamala Harris went on TV last night said there's no and, took, and said there was no inflation. Said the price of nothing's going up, and I go, "No, no, Kamala." And the Hill published it. Saw that. And I said, "I said you guys couldn't." couldn't possibly have corrected that. Um, so she's just an idiot. We know that. Um, but 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 if, if it peaks and sits at eight, we're screwed. And, and by the way, we also know the number's not eight. My brother called it 41. Oh, now, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what the number is, but I do know they're lying and I, or clueless. They're hedonically. Ad- by the way, you know how they do hedonic adjustments? I had this epiphany the other day. They hedonically adjust something because it's gotten better. And sometimes that's true. Uh, and then there's a thing called substitution. They say, well, if you're going to eat, you know, if beef goes up, then you'll eat chicken instead. Well, according to the price, right. chicken therefore must be inferior. So if you're going to, if you're going to let substitution occur, you have to immediately hedonically adjust it back for loss of quality. And so the, 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 the hedonic adjustment the hedonic substitu- the substitution gets completely negated by hedonic adjustments. And, and no one ever seems to talk about that. Right? This is what bothers grub- me about economics when they, when they call it a science. If you're able to call peak inflation the second derivative and expect yeah. people to understand that, people that go vote, right? Again, going out there and saying, well, they stopped inflation, so everything's fine now. Well, no, over the last year, inflation grew by over 9%. And now we're stuck at that level, right? We're stuck at that 
8.5 where it is now and wages have not adjusted again right. 3.5% lower on real wages so people okay. come out and go oh, great they finally stopped inflation they did their job but we go out there and say well this is peak inflation it's not the second derivative maybe and this well, drives so the, me the, that's why i don't the, think it's a science what gets into the definition of inflation it's a sloppy question it's a question about how sloppy is the word inflation so inflation the, the change in inflation could be zero Right. So it could be a steady inflation. The Federal Reserve started talking about that. You know, uh, you know, Tom McClellan, for example, occasionally gets mad at the Fed on Twitter. Uh, one of many, I should add, um, in which the Fed says, you know, we've got a fixed 2 percent impl inflation implies it's their mandate. And McClellan says, no, inflation's 2 percent. Your mandate is the fixed st stability of the currency. That's 0 percent inflation. Right. And so so the Fed tries to play that first derivative, second derivative of the game, too. Right. So so I don't think science or economics is trying to help the average bloke understand anything. Right. I, I'm not sure it's our job to. You know, so 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 then the question is, what are they doing? And I, I don't know. I I I have two black swans up my sleeve that that people are not ready for. Black swan number one is that the Fed doesn't pivot. Right, what, what, whatever the pivot is, right? What, what it actually, how, I don't know what it is. Well, you know, they pivoted, right? The famous Powell, Powell pivot on stage back in uh, 19, I think it was. Um, and, and, and that was a pivot. And so if Paul, uh, my theory is that one black swan would be the Fed doesn't pivot. He all of a sudden grew up a, a, a Volcker spine. And the, the markets are not ready for that. Right. That, that would be a black swan for most investors. I say I had no idea that was going to come. The second, I think, is more dangerous. And that is that the Fed pivots and it doesn't work. Because now okay. you not only don't have a solution, but you now realize you don't even have a sheriff left. Right. So here. OK, before everyone who's listening to this climbs up onto the roof and makes this dive, let's talk about a couple of things. I want you to comment on this real quick. So I agree 100 percent that that inflation is wildly higher than 8.5 year over year. Right. I mean, the restaurant we have, our, our expenses went up between 23 and 24%. And we monitor that pretty closely. Now, getting to our, where we are right now, the Fed has raised rates quite a bit. Uh, the supply chain is not is miles away from healing, but has shown signs of moving in the right direction. Three, there's been some demand destruction because higher prices are here from high, for higher prices. So we get to this zero print there is something encouraging to take from that. No, I mean, or is this just all, there's no chance that we come out of this alive. How many times did the Japanese get an encouraging sign between 1989 and the present? That's a great point. Yeah. Yes. But society hasn't collapsed either. Well, that's right. But the point is, is so I did a George Noble Twitter spaces which is quite an honor, actually. It's a ridiculous Right, thing, got actually. it, yeah. No right, and, and I was arguing with him and I said, look, I think there are, there are markets that are uninvestable. I think the, um, for example, let's say your, your universe was the Nikkei. There was no way to invest that. And he starts going, I could short this. I said, no, timescales are too long. It took too long to get down. You'd get killed trying to short it. And then he said, you could do this, this, this. I said, now you're talking world-class, galaxy-class professional investing. I said, maybe you can do that. But the Nikkei has been uninvestable. I said, the US market in, from 67 to 81 was uninvestable as an equity market, right? It just, 
I, I th people think that somewhere out there they're entitled to an investable market. I don't think they they'll necessarily get it. But what if the not investable market is holding cash? What if that's what's come what they have on their radar to devalue? You have to be in something, correct? Well, that's the problem. So what they've done is they've attempted to take the most prudent people and make them pay dearly, right? A prudent person would put you know what money under their mattress, which is what putting it in the bank does right now, right? Um, oh, here's a step, by the way. I, I, I just, Ron Grease, uh, the guy who runs the chart store, he showed, this is totally tangential, but this will blow your circuits. He showed the 20th century equity capital gains corrected for the M2 money supply, and it was flat. <laughs> Not just okay. gently sloped, it was flat. So then the so question this, is, that's correcting, my point then, right? Yeah, I know. Well, Buffett said, Buffett said in his, in his version of Graham's book, I think it was, no, 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 it was in his 99 Fortune article. It says, by the time you take out all the expenses and everything, and you account for all the things that, that are there, whether you like it or not, without accounting for valuations, just, just investing across all time and space, he said, you can't get more than about 4%. Now, he got 20, but the market can't get more than about 4%. Now, there's so few people who are ready for that since the assumptions are six and a half and seven and eight, and we're overvalued, right? So if you start at the pinnacle and you somehow think you're going to beat the norm from the pinnacle, I think the next secular bear has begun. So do you, then do you look at things like Bitcoin, Ethereum? gold, silver, copper, what, what's the solution? I'm not a Bitcoin guy in part because I, it just, it would take me 10,000 hours to understand it enough where I'd forgive myself if I lost money. Right. I, 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 buying gold is not insane, right? Since the Lydians first coined the first gold coin, it's worked well. Gold bought a month's worth of manual labor in ancient Rome. Right. There's a thing called the Lindy effect. The longer, longer it's been here, the more likely it is to last. So you can kind of blindly buy gold as a hedge. You can lose, but you're not nuts. Bit, Bitcoin what did you call that effect? What did you Lindy, call that effect? Lindy effect, I think it's called. The Lindy yeah, The longer it's been around. Yeah, I got you. The That's longer it's been around, like uh, Catholicism. The longer it's been around, the more likely it is to survive. There's another interesting one, and that is the longer something's been around, the more likely it is serving an important purpose. There's this amazing, a great book by Brett Weinstein, brilliant book by Brett Weinstein. And he said, I got a dog on my lap, so things are changing quickly here. Um, <laughs> he mentions Chesterton's fence, and I didn't know what it was. He says, some guy's going to tear down a fence. His buddy says, why did they build it? The guy says, I don't know. And he said, you should answer that question before you tear it down. And that to me is so profound because I go, okay, so, you know, should we just cut out tonsils? Should we just cut out the appendix? You go, why are they there? Before you cut them out, why are they there? We should get rid of religion, blah, blah, blah. It's been around for 5,000 years. Why is it there? Right? It didn't survive all those years. I'm an atheist, but I go, but be careful. Don't, don't cut out religion. It's been there for so many thousands of years. It's serving a purpose. I love that.
Because I always talk about I, I have no... Is that the hunter-gatherers guy? Yes, it's brilliant. It's, I just, it's I Brett, just started Brett Weinstein is brilliant. I love I that. I literally guy. just started the book. Here's another book for you. I, I listened to his naughty book on the way up to the Adirondacks. Um, Morgan Housel's The Psychology of Money is very good. Very easy read. Very easy listening. And he either he or his publicist or someone sent me a copy. I have no idea it was on my stack of books that get sent. But I, I finally I finally got around to it and said, screw it, I'm getting the audio book instead. And, and it's just such an easy listen where he talks about the, the psychology of money. He talks about why, why we bone things and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just very thoughtful. It's, it's just, it's really worth it. Mental note, Bobby, let's reach out to Morgan too, to get him on the podcast too, because he's a bright guy. Um, Tom, so I said hi. Painted, yeah. You painted a, a, a relatively grim picture, right? But we have to give some sort of takeaway. Like you said, Gold is not unreasonable. Gold, you're not insane if you buy gold. What about owning real estate? What about just investing in yourself? Are we supposed to be, it's just going to be work and consume and there's no way to invest ourselves to wealth? Is that what you're saying? I think you should be playing pure defense. First of all, you know, go on defense. That's my opinion. So, so, so your goal is to not get hurt. And, and you know, at the beginning of bull markets, like in 81, if you're running a hedge fund in 81, but there's about four people doing it, um, you wanted to have a bunch of 22-year-old guys who couldn't give less of a shit about risk. There is a time where when the world's being run by those guys, which describes today, you want to get grizzled old bastards to say, oh, I've seen this. I've seen how this ends. This is not good. Um, and, uh, and so I think you want to play defense. And I, so, for example, I have bought some stuff. I moved starting in late 2020. Exxon got booted from the Dow. I said, oh, that's a top, that's a bottom call. When they replaced Exxon with Salesforce.com, the world has spun off its axis, right? When, and, 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 and then Jesse Felder says, by the way, so I owned energy all the way up from 01. It was, it was so lucky. It was so fortunate. And then I got burned a little bit on the way down. Um, but it was, you know, 13 or 14 years of a big energy position. Um, and then Felder, Felder said that energy uh, used to be back, you know, five, six years ago, 16% of the S&P. It's now 2%. I go, that's a, that's a bottom call, right? It runs the world. How can it be 2% of the S&P? How is that possible, right? Yeah. And, and so I started buying energy, way not enough, right? Sizing, I am not Stan Druckenmiller. Stan can go, you know, 2X, make billions. I, I can't do that. I just tiptoe in. I feel good when I make some money on paper, you know, stuff like that. I, when I went into energy from 01 forward, it probably took me eight years to get up to full speed. Um, I think that the gold miners are actually profitable ventures. They're gold miners with single digit PEs and dividends of five, six, seven percent. Here's one for you. The forgotten asset class, completely forgotten asset class. I've asked so many people, please tell me what I'm missing because I must be getting set up to get duped. There's something wrong here. The, plat the three biggest platinum miners in the world, Sabanye, uh, um, um, IMPUY, what is that? I can't even remember. It's just my symbols now. And uh, Anglo Platinum. And, uh, and uh, they have PEs of five, 
cash on the balance sheet and dividends. And platinum hasn't moved in 20 years. And you go, okay, well, who would buy platinum? Well, I, when I started buying gold, it was two, 270 an ounce. And I could only find about four people who thought it was a good idea. And so you, so, so, so platinum is either a really bad idea or a brilliant idea. And I don't know which one it is. But the platinum, the platinum miners are, are printing money with platinum stuck in neutral. They're printing money. And the question is, when it starts You're talking about Impala? Impala, Impala. I I was, you know, senior citizen moment. Yeah. So I I have positions in each of those. And I've been asking people, I asked a friend at RBC, said, could you send me some information on the free platinum? He sent it to me. It was five years old. I go, that's the newest shit you got at the RBC? He said, yeah, that's it. Huh. So Bobby, before, and Bobby, get, get him another question before we move into the trading part of it too. But just Dave and I are both going to be at the New Orleans Investment Conference yep. uh, in October. It's mid-October, right? Uh, and I'm my topic is going to be about metals in the Fed, metals in the green energy revolution, which the funny part about the green, the, what you mentioned about crude, the second the Democrats won the election, I started buying oil companies. And I, this, there's proof of this on Twitter and on different podcasts I was on in case anyone thinks I'm a liar, because the thesis was the move to green energy. That, that might be great for some of the metals, but they're going to drive the price of crude oil up. The, the big integrateds go along with that. And it was one of the better trades I've had in a long time, but it's just so funny, the counter thought of it. But Bobby, what, you got another question or no? Yeah, I do. So my last question would be on the uh, yield curve inversion, Dave. We talked about this last week and I, we did a little bit of work on it. And if anybody's watching this now that can watch the last week's podcast, we looked at yield curve inversions going back to 1989 and there was only one head fake in there. I was five or six of them and, and it was like five out of six. Which yield curve? Two's tens. And the okay. five out of six uh, of five out of six of those inversions, a recession followed. And in looking at it, we couldn't see any real correlation with the depth of the inversion versus the length or depth of the recession. But what we did see is that stocks rally as the inversion starts to get positive back toward, uh, say, one and a half percent or higher. But the one time that didn't happen was when there was inflation present, which was in the early 90s. I've heard um, people claim the opposite of that. I've heard people claim that when it uninverts is when the shit hits the fan. That's not what you No, it's, that's true. No, it's absolutely true. And it's what I was saying as well. It uninvert, yeah. as it starts to uninvert, the stock- I think you said it incorrectly, Bobby, right. Yeah. Okay. I did, okay. I did. I said it incorrectly. Okay, he reversed it, right. Yeah, I yeah. reversed it. So the inversion starts to go back to positive. The stock market just goes to hell, right. makes its low, and then you can buy it. And most people point, would think that was good news. That's the yeah. funny part. Most people say, exactly. oh, the yield's not a, yield curve's not inverted anymore. We're good to go. It's like, no, you're, but the truck headlights very, are now. It's a very strange phenomenon. <laughs> it's almost as if, well, I don't know what it is as if, but the one time where the, the stock market did not recover when, was when there was inflation present uh, in, the, in that sort of early 90s area where we had anywhere between two and a half and four and a half percent year over year inflation over those months. Um, do you have any opinion on the yield curve and inflation and you know, given that you're a fan of Austrian economics, is there anything that should be done about it or is it just cycles and that's it? Uh, you know, in some sense, 
Frankenstein calls it the guessers are guessing what the other guessers are guessing, which is basically game theory. Um, I think the old Kerman version may be one of these self-fulfilling prophecies at some level, but it also means the Fed is pushing up the short-term rates. And I think it's possible that, that instead of looking at the twos tens, you should be looking at the Fed funds rate and seeing if they're still jamming it up. Now, when there's inflation, you could imagine a Fed which didn't have their head up their ass, which I've made arguments earlier today that they don't maybe. I mean, I'm being real generous. Sometimes I think they're just idiots, right? I just, so I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be no Dave, they're not idiots, get off that track. But, 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 but if there's inflation, therefore they can't take their foot off the brake. And so that could be the, that one correlation. Now, the problem we have now is after 40 years of this, these tailwinds, the Fed is so boxed in that they're either going to have to say, we don't care about 10% inflation, or they're going to have to stay tough. And Bobby and I were on a panel last year in New Orleans, and it, and it turns out that they were saying what they thought was going to happen. And my, my stance is we don't have a clue. You remember that? I just said, we don't have a yeah. clue what the Fed's going to do. And by the way, I remember you being more right than I was in that panel. And I would you say that, that one more time? Would you say that no, one more no, time? No, no, no. That's your one. And that won't come again. Yeah. Okay. Take, okay. That okay. Out, Bobby. <laughs> I put a speakerphone for my wife, by the way. Um, okay, good. Um, good, good. But Jimmy I, might make me edit that out. So I'm glad your wife. Right. But, but, but I think it's conceivable that the Fed's going to look at this and say, history's going to ream us if we don't respect this high inflation. And yeah, about two years ago, Stephen Roach wrote an article that I'm going to take some credit for, actually. So he wrote an article, and I'm on his mailing list. And he said that Powell's making the same mistake that, that Arthur Burns made, where he kept saying transitory, transitory, transitory. And by the time Burns realized it wasn't transitory, it was too late. And, and, and Roach reamed him out. And so then I, I sent an email back to Roach and I, I said, you're, you're absolutely correct. And I sent him a plot and then he sent me a plot back. He said, oh, that's absolutely right. And then about a month ago in the surreal world of chemists versus the economists, I, set, I started a three-way discussion between, uh, you know, I can believe this, Summers, Roach and myself. And, and, and I chimed in and then Summers chimed in with saying, I agree with most of what you said, but thinking, oh, that, that had a loaded tone to it. <laughs> and then Roach chimes in and he says, I think that the Fed is going to be trying to land on a, on a, on a carrier in the middle of the night in a typhoon. He said, it might be soft, but I don't think so. Now, I don't know what a soft landing is. I, I actually don't know. What does that mean? Nothing happened? Is that a soft landing? Is that the definition? To no, me- Because of people who can't afford their food right now, it's already not a soft Nothing landing. soft. There's no question. The other thing and to that's me- That's something we talked about before, Dave. Like, I don't understand why people are so obsessed with whether we're in a recession or not. That's who exactly cares? right. Exactly. People are it's suffering. A name. Who cares? It's a name. We've been in a recession for three years, mm -hmm. right? Now, here's the other thing. I hate the definition of a recession. So, so here's the golf for analog. You're in a sand trap. The fact that you're on the uprise of the other side, does that mean you're out of the trap? No. Right. When it, we're still, you're still in a recession if, if, if the economy was better 
before. And that's my point about, about why I think, I think economics is philosophy now with math. I don't think it's science because if you, if you can't define something, what's the point of the word? If you can't well, actually define it. So that gets to this thing, this idea of this big debate, this going global, which is it, we're going to get inflation or deflation. I'm going, you're describing something of extraordinary complexity using one of two words. Really? Let's back to your weather analogy. You won your debate with your philosophy professor in high school, yeah. right? You can't describe something with a binary language. And there's, right. there, there's a, supposedly a tribe in Africa that's not very mathematically sophisticated. They have three numbers. They have one, two, and many. They're not going to invent calculus. <laughs> that's incredible. One, two, and many. I'm adopting that. Yeah, I know. That's uh, you don't even have to take your shoes off to count in that country, and um, because they don't have shoes. Um, and, and so I think the idea of an inflation deflation and what they even mean, right? You can't define inflation or deflation that makes any sense in a in a in a single concept. Is it you know? And then is is it wage inflation? Is it money inflation? Is it? And I think in some sense Friedman screwed things up by saying it always is just money, because I don't think it is. I think there's psychology, right? We have a terrible inflation psychology, right? If you were bidding to build a house two years from now, forget about what they're saying. Would you be putting a 3% inflation correction on your, on your materials, on your labor? No chance, no chance. Dave, you have anything you wanna to say to Matt Iglesias? I didn't even know who that was. <laughs> It was so funny. It came out of left field. And I'm going, why do you say this? So Matt said, dear Cornell students, don't learn your economics from a, from a chemistry professor. And to me, it's great. When Matt, Matt Iglesias is a famous journalist. So to me, yeah. it's like any attention is better than none, right? My son, I said him that. And for Christmas, he had a doormat made with that quote on it. <laughs> Well, for those of you that are watching this podcast, I'm putting that that tweet up there, along with Stephen Roach's reply, which you've been humble enough to not say. Um, but he basically said, if any chemistry professor was going to go into economics, I'm glad it was you. Um, that was right. Right below Iglesias. Yeah. That was funny. Now, the other thing I want to say, I want to remind people, every few years I go through valuation metrics. And it can, I, I hate PE because they can lie so much, but you get Schiller PE, you get price to book, price to revenues, price, you know, I've got 25 of them. And so you can say, look, if they're all pointing in the same direction, you're probably getting it right. And the 25 metrics that I did back in 2021, before the, the modest, modest adjustment of price, I had us on average, I would say, at around 120 to 130% over historical valuation, which is a 60% correction to get back to historical fair value. Now, one very famous economist said to me, uh, a guy who actually had dinner at my house and then my dog pissed on his girlfriend, that was fun. Um, he said, well, well maybe, maybe the, the historical valuation metrics are wrong. And I said, oh, okay, that could be, but then maybe historical uh, returns will be wrong too then. And so, so, so the bottom line is, is that if, if that's correct, it won't tell you when it's gonna happen or how it's gonna happen, but it's a thermodynamic statement. It says that at some point 
regression to the mean is a force of nature. You're going to give it back somewhere, somehow. Might be 75 years from now. I don't know. But if you go buy a whole, a whole, a whole warehouse full of Toyota Camrys for $80,000 a piece, you're likely to lose. And so I think we have a, a, what I would call a correction coming. Price change severe, attitude correction severe, generational change in attitude severe. My wife's screaming at me. <laughs> that's unusual. Oh yeah, that's never happened before. <laughs> we can't hear you, Jim. You're muted, Jimmy. Jimmy, you're muted. I thought you did oh. that. No. <laughs> yes, we got to get to the trades. I have the I have a restaurant to run. So, Dave, again, these are trades. These are not a commentary. I'm just going to listen to you guys. I'm going to listen to you guys. Macro thing. Hit the okay, ping so pong we, ball. Bobby, I go first. Is that okay? Yeah, it's good. Because I this is going to of our last show we had a technical analysis with Mike's partner who's brilliant. Um, but uh, this falls in that because even even if it's the end of the world and time to jump off a building as some of us have uh, implied. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, there, there are bar bear market rallies. So this is not a commentary that perhaps the bear market is over. I think there's a chance if we do settle above 42.50 that we do make new highs too. But then again, that doesn't, I don't even think that that goes against what Dave is saying that could happen no. in the months come when we start to value properly. But anyway, 42.10, I think is a spot to buy it. That's where we broke out from. We rallied today. We broke back to it. This is the uh, SEP micro S&P 4210 is a spot to buy it with a target of 4470 on the upside and a stop placed well below where we broke out from at 4100 that trade would make 1300 bucks if it got to its um if it got to its target and loses 550 again this is a longer term this is about a week to two week trade bobby yeah so i, I like that trade my my trade's actually going to be a long nasdaq trade so obviously i would i would like a long S&P trade the level of your entry, I think, is fantastic. I had a long trade two or three weeks ago on this show where my target was 42.50. We reached that target. We fell three days past that. And people should, again, understand that a target isn't necessarily a place where you exit a trade. A target is a place where an action is necessary. Now, I did exit the long trade because I'm medium to long-term bearish. So I exited the long trade there. We broke out. And if we retest that level, that's a very, very good buy area for the short to medium term. And I, uh, to a trade two weeks ago when we had trades, last week we didn't, was a long for me from like 41-ish that hit its target either today or yesterday, whatever it was. But yeah, this is a reinstatement of that too. So what, uh, Dave, do you have any comments on short-term trades? You don't even, you don't even consider short-term trades as interesting, do you? Um, they frustrate me. Um, no, no. For me, short-term short-term trading means I made a mistake. Um, I trade on ten-year cycles. Okay, right. So this part's not going to be that interesting, to you, Bobby. What's your? No, trade? it's interesting. It's interesting. I just don't, I don't okay. do it myself. Everything that is actually everything is interesting to you, and that's one of the things that makes you. Uh, who you are, in my opinion. You said at the beginning that there's nothing you don't have an opinion on. And I think your intelligence, I don't know how you test out as far as IQ, but the reason you're brilliant, and I'm not trying to blow smoke, is that you are so keenly interested in so many different things. And that's what I think is really cool. That's the last nice thing I'm ever going to say about you. That's two on the show. That's all you get. <laughs> so, Bobby, what do you got? It's two yeah, more so, than I expected. 
Okay, good. He's going to make me edit that one out too, just so you know. Um, so first I want to recap the Bitcoin trade that I put on. God, it's two weeks ago. Oh God, I destroyed my, my keyboard. Go ahead. <laughs> that, that is a trade. Um, I had Bitcoin longs for about two and a half years that I exited in March, Dave, just for your information prior to the futures actually becoming tradable. I got out of those in March of this year. I went completely flat on crypto. I will trade anything that moves. I've traded mostly crude oil um, in the last, say, 10 years of my career, no, which is the most volatile product but prior to crypto. Oh, no, I so I just want to update. We're about halfway to my target on that Bitcoin. I've moved my stop tighter. Now, the trade I want to do here is a long NASDAQ trade. Now, again, I'm short to medium term bearish for a lot of the reasons Dave said and some of my other reasons. Uh, but I want to buy a pullback in the NASDAQ. So if we get a pullback to about 13,222, I'm going to buy it there. Um, I'm going to be risking about $740. So this will be micro NASDAQ. Uh, my stop on that is going to be about 1282. Uh, I'm sorry, 12,852. And my target is going to be about 1404, which is almost to the 200 day. Uh, not quite. It's well short of that. And it's not where I got the target. I got it off of some harmonics that we use in our analysis. So that's my target. Bobby, where's your, where's your entry? We closed at 13,344, right? Where's your entry? 222. 13,222. 13,222. Okay, so 126 exploded, which by the way, in the NASDAQ, that, that's very not too cheap. far away. Yeah. yeah, it's very true. Okay, so again, I've got a fairly tight gonna... stop on this. I'm risking $740 to make about $1,600 per micro contract. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm going to mm. like it. I, I think we're in bear market uh, rally mode, um, potentially showing some signs to turn it into a bull market, but I'm not, particularly after this conversation, I can say it, mm. but I like it. And I like the fact that the NASDAQ trade, I almost like even better than my um, S&P trade, because if we are in some sort of agreement, my, and I'm going to have a 10-year trade that's going to be against that, but that uh, rates aren't going higher as fast as we thought they were going higher based on the recent data we've had, the NASDAQ should be the leader. I like Apple's already been the leader of this move. I, I think that this is, a, this is a pretty good trade. I like it. Dave? Um, I, I thought that you're men you mentioned ARC there, right? Did you mention, mention ARC? Did I hear ARC? Did you did you mention ARC? Oh no, no. We don't Different talk arc? about ARC. Yeah, yeah, the Winster. I thought I, my instincts tell me that she'd be a great trade, trading vehicle. Why not? <laughs> just gonna fade her. Just fade her? No, well, but but she goes up and down like three X to the market, right? I mean she Yes, yes. She, yeah. she, so, oh, so, so here, just use her as an ETF. Yeah, exactly. And so here's my question. I asked you this before, Jim, you may recall, we were walking back from dinner. I'm going to ask both of you. So, so, you know, there's people who say you can't trade, right? That you can't time market, you can't do this. And I go, well, Jimmy's sitting there in what I don't think is a refrigerator box. I mean, it looks like a house. He, you've been paying your bills off trading all these years. And so you obviously can do it, Bob, you can do it. So, so who's losing? If you guys are winning consistently, where's the inflow of money? That wasn't the question you asked when we were coming. No, back, I know. You said, I know. If you I, have no, I'm system, getting there. I'm getting there. Why don't why you not scale? just get rich? That's right. Because I'm going to answer the second part first, the part that you didn't ask. Why not just scale? Well, I was satisfied you know your with your answer. I was satisfied. Because with your I, I, my emotions change when I have more at risk. And I am not as smart a guy when a position's going against me and I'm 20 grand in the hole in 10 minutes. Bobby, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, and my answer, Dave, would be who says I'm not? <laughs> That's true. That is a brick wall, and there is a hooker standing leaning against it now that I notice. Um, so, so, no, but, but so this is why you should have Morgan Housel on, because he talks about that. Yeah. He talks about, you know, sort of understanding your own psyche. Mm -hmm. And knowing, and he says, he says, what is insane for you is not insane for another person. Right. What's insane for them is not insane. Is what's not insane for them is insane for you. I, it, he says it's very, very. He talks about the contextual. So and here's the fact, a weird thing, Dave, that you might find interesting, given your background. And Jim actually just found this out. I actually had a, a brain tumor in 1997. Uh, base of my brain basically killed my pituitary gland, so I have no adrenal response. This is not a dog tag. It's a medical alert tag, right? So what's the symptom of, of no adrenal response? No physical reaction to fear or stress. Really? I, yeah. I don't get goosebumps, the hair on the back of my neck, none of that. My Even when your room, wife walks in the room? <laughs> well, I do get, so I'm, <laughs> this is getting, I might edit this out. I do get aroused. <laughs> I do get happy. I don't, you know, I don't, there's none of that. So you're basically, like, you're basically on a, on a propranolol your whole life then. So you're basically well, on the, on the, uh, the, 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 the one that the, the, that the musicians take when they want to, when they want to stop the fight or flight. Sure. Mechanism. Sure. So but you feel beta, blo you beta blocker, you're in a beta blocker. I'm smart enough to know when I'm supposed to be afraid. I have a story I'll tell you guys off the podcast about walking in the middle of a mugging in Chicago. Um, I'm smart enough to know when I'm supposed to be afraid, but I don't physically feel it. So, so we went hang gliding here. We went hang gliding here a while ago. Had plane took us up. We're hang gliding around, right? And I just couldn't. I I was excited to be up there, right? We got down, and one of my buddies goes, "That scared the shit out of me." I'm like. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of cool. Like I don't get a physical reaction, right, but right. I'm smart enough to know when I'm in danger. So the odd thing about it is after I recovered from the brain surgery, my trading improved. Because it took out the emotions. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So so Jimmy, that. they should lobotomize you. That's what I'm I going there right now. I'm going that. to the lobotomy clinic. Yeah, I think <laughs> just you would all work on that. that. Right. Three right. times or three times around, I'm told, is the magic right. number. Then, By the way, pull fear out a piece. is a great emotion. Fear has kept me out of some tight spots sometimes. So I'm right. fine with being scared. Um, let's move on because I got to go run a bar. Uh, I'm, we're moving on to the tenure, Bobby. This is a technical trade, and I want you to help me fill in the fundamentals of it. So mm -hmm. this is a, one of those stopping trades we're talking about. We're talking about the August micro tenure futures contract priced in yield terms mm -hmm. so this is a buy if it prints 2.95 and then ride it up to 3.40 as the target stop place black back below 2.65 this trade would make 450 bucks to get your target it's 10 bucks for each one point uh, in the micro tenure and loses 300 that's my technical thesis on it bobby first off what's the fundamental thesis for tenure rates rising back up to 3.4 or is there one jackson hole Jackson Hole could He's potentially gone. Can go. I, I can't hear you guys. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, uh, Dave, you can hear I can, can hear, hear you. I can hear both of you. Yeah, oh, we okay. can hear you, Jim. You just froze up for a second. So okay. Jackson you got, Hole. You got better looking briefly, but it's correct. Thank you. Me. Good, good. I appreciate that. Yeah. Jackson Hole is a reason why that trade could work. But you are talking about 10-year yields getting up above those mid-June levels, which is basically the high on a settlement basis. 
So you're talking about new highs in the 10 year now. No, I'm not. 350, I thought was the high. That was the intraday high. The high settlement was oh, 343. Okay. New settlement gotcha. Yeah, the, yeah. The intraday high was that was 350, but the um, high was 343 on a settlement basis. So if essentially you're talking about a complete reversal of what the market thinks of rates right now, that's a tough one for me to swallow. But that could happen with Jackson Hole. Like, and that's the thing. I think if you're planning on holding this about two weeks, then you would probably have to given your levels. Could you amplify that? Could you tell me what the, what the A-holes at the J-hole are going to do that would cause, that could influence that? Well, I think they could say that inflation is going to be with us for a while and they're going to continue to fight it. Both okay. of which would probably move all along the yield curve, in my opinion. So you would see the short end rise. You'd probably see the inversion stick, but you'd see the long end rise as well. I mean, people don't realize how far the three-year note went. The three-year note when somewhere in the range of 50 basis points in a couple of weeks, that's right. absolutely unheard of. Right. And, you know, this idea that people think 50 ba- a 50 basis point rate hike is, you know, ah, the Fed's just going to take it easy. They're going to do 50. I've only seen one other 50 other than this period of time. And that was like in 1993 or 94. I don't remember which year it was. Um, they did a surprise 50. And I believe that was an easing, not a tightening. So this to me is, you know, it's still watching these people look at, well, it's not going to be 75. It's only going to be 50. You know, that's like saying I'm only going to punch you five times instead of 10 times. Believe me, five times is going to be brutal. Also, you know, when, 50, when 50 represents a huge percentage of the yeah. current rate, yeah, Bingo. right? If they said, look, we're going to hike the rates by 20% above where we're at, you'd go, holy mm-hmm. moly, right? If yeah. the rates are 16 and they hike it to 16.5, who cares? No I doubt think you're going to struggle to get through 315 on the yield. So okay. that, that's going so to be this might, this might be something that I will adjust my stop, see what yeah, happens. It sure. might be something where I'll bring in Mike Arnold, our, our favorite technical analysis, to ask me how to ma- ask him how to manage the trade because he's yeah. very, very good at that. But I, I don't, I, yeah, I can't, I have to, and again, Dave, for our trading, Bobby and I both, fancy ourselves is probably 70% technical analysis because price means more to us than fundamental, but we do like the fundamental discussion to try to kind of buttress our thoughts. So sometimes I'll have a trade just based on where I think the stop should go technically. And I think this is one of those trades. So I have to think of why rates are going to go up to 3.4. So that'll be, that'll be on our next show if I can figure that out. So, so I'm a big fan, by the way, of using technical to tell me when to be patient. Or when to not be patient. So, so for example, um, if I think that energy is a good play, uh, here's a story. I I had a friend at Goldman, the guy who founded the software group at Goldman, there's foundational level, tell me to get into rational software back in the 90s. I was a a tech bull. I know this sounds not imaginable, but I was a tech bull. And, um, and, 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 and I looked at it, it was it had gone straight down in the middle of the biggest tech bubble in history. And I decided that I would do it, but I, I waited until it bottomed out, as they say. Right? I waited until it looked semi-rational. They announced earnings. It dropped another 10%. I go, what's that all about? I called him back. He said, I think they're going to tell a good story. And, uh, and so I bought it inside an IRA more than I should have. And then it went up uh, two and a half fold. Then I asked my friend, what should I do now? And he, he, he says, why? Well, uh, he thought about it. He goes to his analyst shit. And then he says, uh, maybe it takes some profits. And, uh, and, 
And then, so Monday morning, boom, whole lot, gone, boom, out of here. My friend at Goldman said, take some profits. I took some profits. Hello, hello. Um, my wife's building a house behind me. And, um, and, uh, and then from that day on, it marched its way all the way, way back down again. I go, I think I triggered that. I think he got, went into the office and tell our clients to start taking profits, right? And then I asked my, it got all the way back to below where I bought it. <clears throat> and, he's, and I said, what do I do, buy it again? He, he said, no. And, and I, so I didn't, of course. And then I went up fourfold. And then it got massacred in the tech rack. And then I realized the smartest guy at Goldman in their software group had no idea what he was talking about, right? Yeah. He was just he was just winging along. Hey, I know we got to go, Dave. But Mike Arnold says that the why he's my business partner, and I, I live by this: why something happened. That's the weakest question an active trader can ask because it right. doesn't change what happened. Right. Yeah. Right. So oh, good. So we're all in favor of technical analysis. I like that. I didn't know you'd be on our team on that. That's very cool. I am. I am. I just don't do it on the short time scale. Okay. I got to go home. I got to have a drink. Uh, I've got to relax. I got to go to the bar. Um, Dave, it's been so much fun talking to you. Again, uh, there's a couple things. One, you guys are both frozen again. Can you see me or no? I can see, see you. you, Jim. You're good. Okay, good. You were just so motionless. I thought you maybe fell asleep. I died. Uh, I'm, I, I'm I both died. going to be at the New Orleans Investment Conference. I'm, I'm trying to get Bobby to come along with me because we could have a good time. Uh, Dave Cullum was professor at, uh, at organic chemistry at Cornell, and I think he's president of Cornell too. That's the story. I'm sticking to it. And uh, it's been a riot. If you don't know where to find him on Twitter, then you're an idiot. So I'm not even going to have him tell you that. Bobby, Rudy, you got anything? To Rudy Havenstein. Rudy Havenstein is my Twitter. Find friend. him at Rudy Havenstein. At Rudy Havenstein. Yeah, make sure you unfollow Matt Iglesias. That's what I'm finishing with. Good. See you guys. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Cheers. Yeah.